Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who doesn't enjoy balls, but must do it for the girls. <laughs> I was really hoping you'd describe me as a man whose hips are too large and head is too small. Well, but there's a million of them, right? Like, a man who's like a monkey, climbing, <laughs> climbing trees and, flat, and showing his butt to people. There's a million of them. But it's like, it, but I just that line tickled me for some reason because there, there, there were so many. There were so many lines in the movie where, like, which were clearly, you know, that sort of like, um, that sort of uh, when you talk about sort of that upper crust group of people, the way they like those kind of like joking. Yes, I, I'm trying to think of the word. I'm because this movie is very, very strange that way. It, 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 a lot of the people in this movie are very cynical, even of their own positions. Yes. Well, you know what I actually like? I, I mischaracterize this movie dramatically. But we should yeah. talk about that after you introduce it. Well, I will. Uh, I was making reference, though, when I said what I wanted your intro to be, to the fact that the original title was The Serval, an animal I don't think either of us really had any idea what was, but is a big cat who's proportions look like they are a fourth-hand description uh, drawn in a medieval man- manuscript by a monk who had never met anyone who had ever actually seen Right, them. and who didn't really have any concept of what a big cat is. Has never seen yes. any big cats, period. Had seen a house cat and thought, <laughs> that well, I'll make his be- ears bigger, bigger and his legs longer, and that's a big well, cat. It's a, so it's essentially the cat version of medieval Jesus. Yes, yeah, yes, especially yes. medieval baby Jesus, where it's like just a, medieval a terrifying baby Jesus in that period. Yeah, in that period where baby Jesus was always drawn as a full-grown adult, <laughs> just tiny, um, just tiny. Ah, uh, which is very appropriate, having just watched the Tin Drum. Yeah, uh, no kidding, huh? So this week we are watching The Leopard, or Il Gattopardo, uh, which is the Italian term for a plethora of big cats, because they didn't really dir- differentiate for a while. Yeah, well, that's a language. Uh, so it actually translates to the serval. It is uh, named for the animal on the family crest of the author of the original novel, Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampandusa, uh, who... Uh, based the story on his grandfather, maybe his great-grandfather, I'm not quite sure where the generations divide there, uh, but an older, an older long-dead relative. Uh, maybe not so long-dead, well, I mean, but an older relative. Yeah, I don't think it's actually that far. Like, if you look at the timeline yeah. of when he lived, it's, it couldn't yeah. have been that far. Certainly, this he knew him in life. I'm, I'm fairly certain of that. Uh, the film is directed by Lucino Visconti. Uh, Pat jokingly on Twitter while watching this referred to it as the Italian gone with the wind, uh, a phrase that has been applied by other people. Yeah, to this I, film. I figured it had. I did not read it before I wrote that, but I was like, there people have yeah. made comparisons. I will say, yeah. this is a better movie. Yeah, it, well, it's a historical biopic. Uh, there's less racism in this one. Well, but there's uh, fewer people to be racist about 
Um, and, <laughs> but, true. but it's also less classist if we want to compare classism and racism because it has that sort of joking, cynical edge to it about all the classes. It's a little bit yeah. more even-handed about that than, uh, well, you know, I, I mean, if you think about it, if you want to compare, right, like, you could very easily, very clearly, the people, the you know, uh, Giuseppe has a very, a different view than somebody, for example, writing Gone with the Wind's view of African-Americans. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, well, it's it's interesting, uh, Visconti, uh, there, there are a lot of differences in the novel, Uh just from a cursory reading about the novel, uh, especially politically. Um, so Visconti approached it with a very specific question in mind, and that was, if uh, Tancredi, the nephew, uh, Elaine Delon's character, uh, if Tancredi had been born later, <clears throat> would he have been a fascist? Uh and, and we all know the answer to that question. Yeah, not necessarily in a judgmental way. Um, but would he have been I mean, a member as, of the fascist party? But would he would would someone of his character have uh, have just fallen <laughs> followed the wind and uh, become whatever? Well, and so we know we, what we know is Visconti. And the answer is obvious. Well, yeah. but we know Visconti's interpretation, which is yes. We don't know. Yes. I mean, having never read the actual source material, I don't know. Yeah. What, I don't know that I necessarily would have come up with the same answer. We can yeah. never answer well, that question. Yeah, Lem- we know that Visconti's answer is yes. Lampedusa wasn't necessarily making a uh, political argument, from what I've read. Uh, he was just telling the story of the unification through the lens of his family, right? Although, um, to be fair, most of those things that appear in the leopard. Those famous quotes are apparently direct quotes from the book, and they yeah. are fairly politically charged. Yeah, so you don't get to call uh, different people leopards and stuff, and lions and and jackals without making a political statement. That's the thing. The dialogue, the dialogue is is sort of mixed around within the narrative, but still drawn from the book. Um, and context is everything, right? Yeah, you go, so there's there's a chance. There while is, it is a very chance, charged phrase. But again, Jekyll or Jackals is yeah, a hard yeah. one to not. If it is not politically charged, it is at least class charged. Yeah, like yeah, and that that specific phrase is why the leopard, as the English translation of this title, makes sense. It is an animal with a metaphorical importance to this narrative. But the title itself means something. If the title is just referring to the animal on the crest and not the people as representatives, or the animal as representatives of the people in the family, right. or a specific person in the family, um, it's a different thing. So when, when Burt Lancaster's character self-identifies as the leopard, it becomes a different thing than just the animal on the crest. Right, but uh, uh, interesting that you think this is even-handed. I think it's not necessarily even-handed. Everyone's attacked in different ways, though. Uh, so the the politically elite and the politically elite who want to become those politically elite, the aristocrats and the nouveau riche who want to replace them, not necessarily kill them, as uh, as the prince points out. Um, 
are are obviously painted poorly. Um, yes. That phrase itself suggests that the proletariats are lumped in there, but at the same time, he repeatedly talks about Sicilians as people who uh, just sort of don't care. Well, <laughs> but don't, like, it depends they, because he, what one of the things right we, before he says. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just thinking that it really depends when you consider that I think a fairly decent amount of at least the words in the book or in the movie are taken, a lot of those kind of things are taken directly from the writing. Yeah. Which is by, I don't necessarily know that a lot of those that we read as negative about Sicilians are actually meant to be negative about Sicilians, but more like trying to you know what i mean like it's like it's hard to decide if people talking about their own nationality are being negative or not it's my my reading is it's hard to have an aristocrat say things about the lower class right, negative about he, them without it coming off mind, as classes. he's not talking about the lower class he's talking about sicily in general which includes him uh, yeah. Because he explained, he's, it's very clear, at least in the context of the movie, that when he says yeah. Sicilians don't want to move or improve, he's not just yeah. talking about... Because they already think they're perfect. I love that line. Too. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> like, it's already very clear that, like, that's including yeah everybody in his family. Their vanity is greater than their misery. Is is such a... And when you, can, and when you lump it in with the other movie yeah. about Sicily that we've watched... Yes. It actually all tracks fairly well. Those two make a fairly decent of a piece, right? Cause, I well, mean, that actually brings up an interesting thing because one of the criticisms leveled at this movie is that it was more about contemporary Italy than about the Italy of the time periods being portrayed, which is really a dumb thing to say about a period piece. A period piece is always more about, about the, the time it's, it's made, made in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, I... I I challenge you to make a period piece that is about the actual time that it's from because you end up with primarily that other movie we watched, which is a pseudo documentary. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the same thing. Narrative films, narrative, uh, historical dramas are about historicity, not history. It's our interpretation of the events, not, not a documentary about the events. So, what I mean to say is Salvatore Giuliani uh, being a contemporary revolutionary um, and obviously political turmoil in Sicily had not calmed down by the right. time. And, and, and you see a lot of when this movie's made these things being kind of of a piece, right? Like, I mean, they're they're Yes, they represent they're, they're about different time periods. But yes, they very much do line up very easily. Yeah. Um, and it and it's just that I thought that was fascinating. So in reality, what you end up with is this movie. I was, what I was going to talk about is my mischaracterization of this film as being yes. the Italian Gone with the Wind, because I had only watched about the first ten minutes of the film when I wrote that, and it's just nothing but sweeping vistas in, in glorious color, which is essentially <laughs> really is. the defining element of Gone with the Wind because it sure as shit ain't the actual like story. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. What I found interesting was is that you have that the visual style in many ways have gone with the wind. The Technicolor is not quite as intense in this, but you know, still heavy visuals, and I think probably more natural visuals too. Like Gone with the Wind uses liberal use of things that aren't real, 
Whereas I yeah. don't think any this uses anything that's not. I don't think there's any back painted backdrops in this film. Um, but uh, it is filmed mostly on location, right? And then and Gone with the Wind just can't say novel, that. So. It just can't. Yeah. Um, so sweeping vistas. So you got the sweeping vistas of Gone with the Wind meets Salvatore Giuliani meets that film that we watched that was about the aristocrats in in England that I can't remember the name of, where they <laughs> where they have the longest lunch ever. <laughs> Not in England, in France. Oh, in France. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that uh, film? The Divine. Or, oh yeah, the, the, the Discreet Secrets so, of the Bourgeoisie. Yeah. So um, that 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 because it has that that cynicism about the upper class is yeah so present that 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 it brings that to mind for me as well. Yeah, so a little less surrealism in this film. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, still. it's a much more mundane. It, it's that's why it's a yeah. blend of these things because. Yeah. You can't have people just doing like totally surreal shit in a his in a yeah. presumably historical fiction. So it is it is also the same time period as Gone with the Wind, which I mentioned only to tell my favorite story about Giuseppe Garibaldi, uh, who is not portrayed in this film, but is certainly uh, spirit in this film and mentioned quite often because it takes place uh, around his revolution. Uh, Gerbaldi, around this time even, because this this is 1860, uh, thereabouts, uh, within a few years would get a letter from Abraham Lincoln uh, saying, hey, how would you like to be a major general in the Union Army nice. during the Civil War? And Gerbaldi, who who had traveled the world, uh, he, he worked oh, yeah, revolutions no, he, in South yeah. America uh, before coming famous home to Italy. It, yeah. uh, famous for it. Uh, he responded that uh, that he would only accept if he were put in total charge of the Union Army. Uh, and Lincoln would not accept those terms. But to be fair, based on his track record, I think Lincoln may have made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it could have ended pretty quick. Like, from uh, everything I've seen, that man... from I mean, I, it was only cursory reading, but it, it would appear that, like... That may have been an error. Yeah. Uh, Gerbaldi, a couple of years later, on the passage of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, wrote a very nice congratulatory letter uh, to uh, to Abraham Lincoln with another great line in it. Posterity, uh, posterity will call you the great emancipator. I'm not sure if he coined that phrase or not. I, I couldn't find a source. I actually spent a couple of hours trying to figure out where the source for the great emancipator as a phrase came from or as a term applied to Lincoln. I couldn't find it, uh, but I'm not going to make the claim that Gerbaldi uh, Invented, coined yeah, it here. Probably not. Posterity will call you the great emancipator, a more enviable title than any crown could be. And greater than any merely mundane treasure, you are a true heir to of the teaching given us by Christ and John Brown. Huh. Which I really loved. What, what an interesting letter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a uh, that's the middle of one of the like four paragraphs of the letter, but it's it's widely available online if you wanted to look it up and read. I will it. have to read it. it. Sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But Garibaldi is a, a very interesting historical figure to me because of his interactions with America during the Civil War, uh, <clears throat> and other things. I mean, well, I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, Italian obviously. unification is is interesting too. Uh, but I'm not Italian, so I don't have a horse in that race. I see. 
though, though, from what I can tell from this movie, people who did have horses in those races uh, were jumping horses all the time. Yeah, I mean this, and and I think that's that's where you get into really, truly like, um, like cu- current commentary kind of elements. I yeah. again, I don't know how much of that's present in the in the original story. I, I would like to know actually, but like he basically jumps horse. Be and that's I think supposed to be commentary on the question of whether or not he would be a fascist or not, and the answer yeah. and the answer they are giving is sure as shit he would be. <laughs> yes, because he's a politician. He wants power, and that's that's one thing about this movie is it's it's painting the unification as a revolution without a revolution, um, which is true of a lot of revolutions. The people in power changed, but the power structures didn't change. Even when how those people get into power changes, the structures themselves are kept in place, and it is still a, an upper class and a lower class, and that is ultimately, uh, unless I am just reading way too much socialism into this film. Um, when when it you know, comes to critique. '60s European film, you can't read too much socialism into it. You just can't. It's impossible. I didn't. I didn't think that was yeah. I mean, it, there's very little. Like, there's very clearly a socialism bent to it, and and when you consider the era in which, um, again, we it would be nice to to know more about the original manuscript. But when you consider the era that, um, let's see here, I need to look it up again. But the era in which the actual original manuscript was written, it wasn't. It was the late 50s, I believe. It wasn't too long before. But also when you consider the movements of literature versus the movement of film, that tracks with when literature would be... You also couldn't read too much socialism into literature at that time either. <laughs> In 58, yeah. I, I, I think, though... I feel like, uh, from what I've read about De Lampedusa, uh, he was much more of a strict... Uh, a strict conservative, perhaps one who realized that he was holding on to ideals that had no place in the current world, but still a conservative nonetheless. Right, and that, and that may be true. And so he may have painted a different picture of the people who are not of his group. Yeah, but um, you know, he at the same time is still. T- I mean, like. The the comments on his work do talk about contemplating the decline of yeah. the Sicilian aristocrat, uh, aristocracy. So that if he's contemplating that, there's going to be a certain bear in mind that people are informed by the, their surroundings and the sort of even the most conservative person is is informed yeah. and uh, channeled based on the popular zeitgeist around them. And well, in 1950s. Europe, his it will in some way be a reaction to that, whether or not it's true enough, purposeful or not per se. True enough. There is this quote from the uh, Michael Wood essay uh, from the Criterion Collection: "The convergence and divergence of Lampedusa and Visconti are particularly interesting here. Lampedusa was a Sicilian aristocrat deeply skeptical about progress. Visconti was a Northern aristocrat deeply dedicated to it." But Lampedusa was too thoughtful a conservative to believe he could simply cling to the past, and Visconti was too intelligent a radical to believe all changes were for the better. 
So I think we definitely get... I mean, obviously we're getting Visconti's view because we're watching the film, not reading the book. Right. Uh, but it seems to me so that, be, like, Visconti probably put a fair amount of consideration for Lembedusa's views into the film. It's doubtful that, like, Visconti just decided that he was going to turn it into this one. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, true, true. And those those views are two sides of a coin, too. You know, a conservative who recognizes he can't hold hold on to the past, and the uh, the liberal who recognizes we can't march too fast to the future without consideration of where we're coming from, um, and the path we're already on. Uh, you know, they're they've got more in common than they do apart right they still want to be in different places true enough but right right but i mean like both of those are the ideal sort of like versions of that thing right (laughs) like Mm -hmm. to a certain extent yeah um and and of course as a common you know as a person commenting on that like who knows how exactly true those things are but yeah I would need yeah, we've certainly idea. had we've certainly had Criterion essays make claims that are clearly bold faced lies. Yeah, before, yeah. So. Well, I, I I believe that based on what I saw in this film, and yeah, based on what I've seen so far from the manuscript. But like you know, I would need to read it myself to be truly certain. And let's be honest here, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Almost certainly not. There's one thing I can I can barely watch a three hour hour historical epic where I'm reading the entire time. Uh, I'm certainly yeah, not going magnify to magnify that by to, a thousand times. Yeah, that's not to read happen. the novel even in English translation. Um, actually, speaking of three hours in English translations, the original cut of this movie was actually 20 minutes longer. What? Uh, and Visconti himself, along with his producers, decided that was way too long. So like they shaved three off three and a half hours is just madness yeah. territory. Yeah, three. Hey, only three hours twenty five minutes. Thank you. Uh, so he shaved it down to three fifteen for the release for Khan. Uh, decided that maybe maybe that was still a little too long. Uh, I have to assume that all this extra time came out of the hour long ballroom scene that is the third act. Um, that that checks but, out. Because like the, the I rest don't know of the where film, the edits honestly, were like for a three and a half hour, for a three hour and five minute movie, it doesn't feel like it, it, is it probably, moves at a good pace. I mean, it's it's it, it clips through. I, was I think not it's also it. also the longest movie we've watched for the Clarion Collection without an uh, uh, an intermission in the cut. Yeah, no, uh, that was interesting because I decided to give myself intermissions. I watched <laughs> yeah, this over the smart. course of three days in one hour chunks, yeah. and I got to yeah. tell you. That was a pretty fucking good way to watch this film. Not a bad idea. Not a I bad do idea. not know what it would be like to just sit down and watch three hours straight. But that being said, at least one of those times, the first time I turned it off, I turned it off out of necessity, not because I wanted to. Yeah. I was like, I will I, say, an hour in, I was like, shit, this is interesting. I watched it in one sitting, and, and it kept my interest. It is, yeah, no, it is a good movie. Every single time I did it, I was like, I, I didn't zone out at all. I was like, wow, I'm fascinated by what's happening here and a lot of that credit goes to so lancaster (laughs) surprisingly right weirdly enough Uh, american incredibly engaging as 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 the main character as the american uh american critics hated him when it first came out they were all just you know 
like objectively yeah. wrong. Jonathan Miller of the New York derided Lancaster as muzzled by whiskers and clearly stunned by the importance of his role. I think that's just wrong. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's just, like, what that says to me is that, like, American cinema at the time had built a series of expectations around what a leading American star is like Burt Lancaster is supposed to be like. And yeah. the character in this film just isn't that thing. Well, this is also Burt Lancaster playing against type in a lot of ways. Well, of course, I mean, of course, yeah. Playing an Italian aristocrat as opposed to the noir detective or cowboy that he played well, everywhere else. And, and But that's what I mean. It's like they they built a specific set of assumptions about what a leading man like Burt Lancaster was supposed to be like in a film. Yeah. It was the, uh, the producer who insisted on Lancaster... Uh, and Visconti actually uh, was against it. Uh, there is a story that uh, when meeting with Visconti, he discovered that Burt Lancaster had uh, grown up with Sicilian neighbors and had actually ingrained himself with their uh, with their political history just in conversation. So, Jeez. so, so knew knew where he should be coming from uh, apparently. So it's really weird and weird, interesting. Weirdly enough, um, uh, yeah, lots of weird, fun little stories involved with this, I guess. Uh, yeah. Oh, the American version of this, by the way, they did the thing that we've seen. Uh, Lestrada did this too, uh, where Burt Lancaster, our American actor, just performed his part in English and was overdubbed, and then for the English cut of the film, they just used his. Oh, his weird. vocal track. Um, they did the same thing for Los Strada. Uh But uh, um, the American cut is only 167 minutes. Right. So uh, probably lesser. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine it still being a good movie with a full hour cut or nearly a full hour Yeah, cut. I don't know where that hour would come from, honestly. I don't. Uh, I can't <laughs> think of parts of the film that... The, the majority of the ballroom, the ballroom scene. scene is no, long. everything in the ballroom scene. It's but by the time you though. get to the the three hour cut, there's no scenes yeah. in the ballroom that are just wasteful nonsense. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. This is a movie that deserves to be three hours long. Like when we were signing up for this, and I saw I saw a three and a half hour or a three hour historical epic, I started to cry a little bit. <laughs> because these are essentially the definition of my nightmare. Yeah. Uh, anytime one of these rolls up, the only thing worse is that if if it is Russian, essentially. Um, but I was, I really enjoyed this film, and so taking an hour out of it just is fucking incomprehensible. I don't yeah, know I'd, where you I'd, would take it from. Maybe you would do a hack job, is what you would do. <laughs> I mean, See, it's the American version. So, like, the only thing I could think of that could cut, we could cut the half-hour battle sequence, but the American version isn't going to cut that. No, God, no. <clears throat> That's probably uh, the main part of the movie. They probably cut yeah. back to it. Like, Visconti only put that in to offer people context so that they would understand uh, Garibaldi without having to know who he was, without having to be Sicilian or Italian. Um but that's the weird thing is, is like I don't think it accurately um, demonstrates that because you watch that and presume, the Redcoats are Garibaldi's army, yes, right? and 
But, like, I almost, I, there was almost one more tweet that went out, like, ah, yes, the historical battle known as the huge clusterfuck. <laughs> because that, that, what you see on screen makes no damn sense. To be fair, that's true of most historical battles. That's true. Um. But you would expect, given the era and everything, that we are in a transition between a time where everybody just definitely lined up and shot each other to a time yeah. where, like, that became like, wait a minute, what now? Um, One of the but reasons we're, we're, we're Giribaldi... contemporary with the Civil War. Bear in mind, so yeah. that is One that of the was a Giribaldi was each other war. internationally famous is because he started introducing guerrilla tactics, right? And I also I war. understand that as well. But what we saw was a fairly confusing and not necessarily accurate representation of guerrilla tactics because the people did not seem to be well organized. And that sort of behavior does require pretty strict organization, just a very different type of organization than traditional war was. Whereas people just seem to be running around doing shit <laughs> a lot of the time, which was confusing. Uh, I, so I, I th- but that's I why like they the wore the red shirts. Right, I so understand that. Know, that. So that you, you know can understand who, what who you were supposed to do the shit to. We should be watching, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but no, it was just that, that battle was a little like, wait, that what? What's happening here? Why are we hanging I think it this was, man? What's going on here? It, yeah, who's winning this battle right now? As it turns out, uh, no one. Um, well, I mean, in the grand scheme whoever, of things, Adam, that's always the answer. Whoever wins, we lose. Um, though ultimately, I suppose uh, Givaldi's. See, I'm not familiar enough with Italian history and the history of his campaign obviously he was fighting for unification and ultimately what happened was unification under a king but with a senate so uh things uh things were complicated <laughs> and well, not quite they, and what they everyone always wanted. are um yeah yeah and i mean you could do worse but then we we see that like we're only what like things don't exactly go super well for united italy in the next, you know, 50 to 60 years, either. Yeah. So clearly it was not exactly the best result, but what is, right? When was the last king of Italy deposed? Good question. Uh, the monarchy was... Uh, <laughs> the last king of Italy uh, ruled for two months, uh, came to power May 9th. Cool. Uh, 1946 was deposed with the monarchy abolished on June 12th. Uh, I assume he was actually part of that political process because uh, he yeah. lived to be he lived to 1983 uh, in exile in Portugal. But uh, yeah, uh, but he was deposed and De Nicola became president, and then uh, yeah, in 46. So, who was... How does that line up? Who was who was right before him? Did Italy have a king while Mussolini was in power? I didn't... I did not realize that. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emmanuel III was... Victor Emmanuel III was king from 1900 to 1946. Hmm. I uh, bet... It seems like he was really prominent and powerful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he had a lot of influence over the Italian government at the time. Clearly was in charge of things, yeah. 
apparently, uh, even in 1940s uh, newsreels, they appear to have general uh, general support. But uh, yeah, very very interesting. Uh, yeah, it seems like Italian history is pretty fascinating. But alas. Yeah, it was March 30th, 1938, that the Parliament established the rank of First Marshal of Empire and gave it to Mussolini. Uh, which is when Victor Emmanuel started uh, started to realize that maybe they didn't like him. Um, <laughs> because it was... It was the uh, it was a military position, and it was essentially commander in chief of the military. Uh, so it was a direct uh, direct power uh, obstruction to him. Mm. So anyway, that's a conversation completely apart from the film. Yep, but... that's been our Italian history minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also known as us reading Wikipedia. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, this, this, I mean, I really, it, it, it takes a special kind of work to make me not become sleepy during a historical <laughs> yes. fiction. And, yes. um, and you did not become sleepy. No, not at all. In fact, I actually rewatched certain parts because I realized I had missed something. There's some real interesting, subtle things in this movie. Uh, not just the, hum- a lot of the humor is very subtle humor too, but, uh. Well, I actually thought this movie was hilarious, to be honest. Yeah. Like, the, the humor yeah. is subtle, but, like, it's rife with it. Yeah. Yeah, in that regard, it almost, it, it reminded me of War and Peace, both in both in how it actually plays out and my expectations versus the delivery of the piece. You know, right. I thought War and Peace was going to be a completely dry, boring epic, and that it's actually surprisingly funny and enjoyable and engaging. <laughs> So yeah, uh, the soundtrack to this film, uh, Visconti, being an aristocrat himself, sort of wanted to uh, keep things legit, which is one reason that they filmed on location, um, and which is why it looks so friggin' beautiful. Um, yes, and thank God he and did that, that crazy house with its disused rooms. Um, but uh, he also wanted the music to be appropriate. And the waltz that they dance to in the ballroom scene is a previously undiscovered Verdi piece uh, written for harpsichord when he was a teenager uh, and then lost. Um, Which seems impossible, but... I know. Nino Nino Rota, the uh, composer, uh, obviously fleshed that piece out uh, to fully compose it for orchestra. Right, of course. Uh, but uh, at least one source, and this is pulling off of TV tropes, which is probably pulling off the IMDb trivia page, which is which probably is just out of being made asshole. up. Yeah, uh, so I can't source this. And there's a little confusion on uh, 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 pronouns. Uh, but from my reading of it, the claim is that Visconti found the Vivaldi piece in his attic. Uh, I don't know, the, or the Verdi, not Vivaldi, sorry. Um, the Verdi piece in his attic. 
Uh, I don't know if they're trying to refer to Verde with the his or to Visconti. Either way, uh, kind of weird uh, that it would go undiscovered for uh, the better right. part of 100 yeah. years, uh, if not longer. Uh, Visc- uh, or, uh, Visconti were making this film in, what, 1963. Uh, Verde died in 1867, I believe. But if it was composed so, when he was a teenager, it actually makes it even was, older than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the other story on the origin is that uh, Nino Rota found it, quote, in the possession of a Roman antiquarian. Um, <laughs> which which we had a, a long discussion before this started about what exactly the <laughs> euphemism antiquarian means in terms of like European aristocrats, yeah. which just is essentially eccentric hoarder. <laughs> and uh, that's the thing, just a long family of eccentric right, hoarders. Right, yeah, yeah, is all long, that really many means. generations of eccentric hoarders, to be he fair. He probably well. hasn't even collected anything himself. He just hasn't thrown out great grandpa's piano. Uh, right. No, no, no. Or I think you made a mistake in using the singular. He hasn't thrown out any of Great Grandpa's pianos. Yes, probably. Probably. Again, we were talking about the aristocratic class here. Okay, so uh, one per room. It's yeah, how you I, how you do. They are in there with all of grandfather or grandmother's vases and assorted paintings. And the, and the frescoes portraying the gods worshiping us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that. That is so great. I, it's so. It makes so much sense, and it is so hilarious to listen to too. Yes. <laughs> oh, and any house yeah. where you know all any palace where you know all the rooms is not worth living in is such is the most er, uh, aristocratic statement that could ever be made in the history of mankind. To, to be fair, it is their summer home. Yes, and it's, it's also like meant to be a joke. I mean, there. it's meant to be yeah. a joke when it's <laughs> delivered by the characters, and it's also meant to be a joke as delivered by the movie. But yes, it is absolutely. still fucking hilarious. It is. It is. It really. Uh, yeah. And the entire, the entire idea of this. I love uh, his nephew uh, when he arrives at the summer house. And Creddy arrives at the summer house with his friend who who really wants to see those frescoes. Uh, <laughs> and they're in the proper military uniforms. And for a moment, the prince is clearly confused. And not just jokingly confused. <laughs> like the way he reacts to them in proper uniforms and not in red shirts. He asks, he asks, and it could just be another one of his jokes. But I think he's like, legit, he seems legitimately interested. No, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it plays as a joke because that is the way <laughs> the, his character is recognized as being kind of jokey and yeah. cynical. But yeah, he very clearly is, why the hell are you wearing this uniform? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Dan Creddy just just tells him, "Oh, that was ages ago, right? Like six months ago, or whatever. Like yeah. not even. Like the, I mean, there's no telling how much time is meant to have passed in the film, but it's certainly not years. No, and and even if it is years, it is countable on less, much yeah. less than one hand. Yeah, it is like no more than like uh, two years, and it is definitely less than two years." It's less than a year, more presumably, and yeah. it it, and that and that. But the answer is also supposed to play as a joke, right? As far as the movie's concerned, right? Like the, the such is the fickle nature of of these young people, right? And yeah. especially these ones who have this lust for power. Um, 
that they yeah. could just change sides without even blinking an eye, and then like say all kinds of nasty things about the red shirts when they do yeah. it too, right? Like, and then and then smile uh, as the red shirts are being uh, executed at the end. Yep, and congratulate one another on Italy being, uh, you know, when he says he says in the ballroom scene as he's lounging on a couch about how. Uh, Italy, the new Italy needs to be a place of law and order. Uh, and then his cousin calls him out and, and says, you didn't used to talk like this. And his response is, I've always talked like this. And the thing is, no, in a way she's right, because obviously he hasn't always talked like that. He used to be a Right, those rebel. specific words are new. Yeah, but he's always talked like that in that he has always been a man who will say whatever the politically convenient thing to say is. Absolutely, yeah. No, and yeah. and we're all, as an audience, supposed to be well aware of that fact. Yes. That this guy Especially is a political by that opportunist. Point. He is yeah. very much one of the jackals. Yeah. Uh, so, and it makes me long to know what happens to that man. Here's an interesting thing I, I for need, you. I then. need like I legitimately need an Animal House style wrap up. The book has one. Oh, fucking great! That's amazing. The book has an epilogue. Fucking perfect. Because you gotta know, right? You're like, what yeah. happens to this jackass? So uh, he had a long and loveless marriage uh, because he married for money. Uh, well, even if he married a very beautiful well, woman. Well, and but again, uh, in the book, is she? I mean, we you know. In the book, she yes. is supposed to be just but, as beautiful. But you know, I mean, uh, they even telegraph that, right? Like the the prince yeah. telegraphs that. Like, was it like thirty days of passion for thirty years of ashes, or thirty days of fire yes. for thirty years of yeah. ashes, or something? All right. So he, uh, from what I read, the uh, the book talks about. Uh, Tenskredi referring to their courting as the best years of his life and, you know, the anticipation being so much greater than uh, the delivery um, as the uh, as the prince refers to there, too. Um, uh, I can I cannot recall what I read about the postscript only focused on Tenskredi, so I don't know uh, how how anyone else works into it. Uh, he had just died uh, in part of the postscript. Uh, so someone comes back to his cousin uh, to tell her that uh, he really did love her uh, but had to marry for money. Um, which, again, essentially, essentially what his uncle says has to be done. So right. I guess it can't be that. Uh, yeah. Though his uncle also regrets his own uh, marrying for money, which is interesting in its own right uh because you know he he openly complains about not marrying for love he's clearly jealous that uh Tenskredi is marrying uh angelica not not because he wants that political marriage but because he likes her right she's intelligent she's beautiful he's into her mm. um he's too old to be into her <laughs> well but it's it's it, it is what we the movie gets away with it because it doesn't get super gross yeah it never goes as far as a you know because if you made this movie in a different context at a different time him being into her would get weird yeah 
but it yeah, just, and, it and it's even this film. It's just like yeah, of course, you know, he looks at you know the beautiful woman that like you know he's just playing too old <laughs> for at this point. Yes. And, and and thinks about oh I used to be young I mean that's that seems yeah. like a totally reasonable behavior for people to engage in, but um, also you know the only time he really interacts with her on that level is when they're dancing together and she asks him to dance and it's right, also right, no. symbolic of the new Italy and him letting go and yeah yeah of course blah, blah, and, blah. but like even before that we he does talk about it. Nothing to talk about, it, but you can see. I mean, like that comes down yeah, to like every, just really everyone acting. in the room stops when she first walks on. Right, the absolutely, yeah. So and, yeah. and and at other times too, you just see the way people interact with her. Is like they the movie is telling us that she is the most beautiful. I mean, like the most beautiful person that any of these people have ever seen. Yes, you know. So. Absolutely, and we're and we're, we're supposed to accept that, and that and that's just supposed to be the way it works, right? And so, and then it and it makes him reflective about like the fact that like he's not as young as he imagines he is. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, someone. But in, during the epilogue, somebody comes by and tells Conchetta that he that uh, Tancredi really loved her, um, but had to marry for the money. And that and, and what a, what a weird why bother, why what the fuck yeah. what what purpose does that serve yeah for whom whom for whom is that good presumably she reader, got married I at guess. some point uh no she did not oh, okay. uh, well, it, it specifically mentioned the recap I read specifically mentioned that she was still a spinster when that happened hmm. um, that's relatively surprising but yeah. But I uh, guess if they didn't have that much money, marrying off what seems to be multiple daughters would have been probably a very difficult financial burden. Yeah, he says he says that they don't have. I think they're plenty rich, and I think not that much money uh, is is a very much relative. Well, it term is absolutely within a the prince's term, opinion. But when you are trying to marry off six princesses, yeah, what the. What the priest People says have certain expectations the beginning, about what a princess comes with, yeah. comes equipped with. True. What the priest says when they're first traveling to the summer home, uh, when they stop in that, that pub or whatever, and he's drinking with the locals, and he says that the aristocrats live in a different world with different worries, uh, one that God didn't make but they made for themselves. Uh, I think that's, that's as true about the prince as anyone else. The prince Absolutely. might be more forthright recognizing that as a fact, but when he talks about it not being that much money, I don't think it's really not that much money. Sure, right. it's seven again, kids. We're, we're, but... we're, we're, we are, again, we're talking about relativistic terms here. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Like, for again, like the standard princess package... <laughs> yes. Probably it is probably significantly less than the standard princess package usually includes. And so therefore <laughs> is a difficulty for him to get her married to somebody of what they would consider reasonable status. Now mind you, all these are yes, houses of their own creation, okay? These are prisons of their own making. But so is the prison that the that ridiculous priest lives in. I mean, he's as much of a jackass as anybody else in this film. Uh, yes. So I mean, it, you know, he 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 is very much meant to be painted as like overly uptight and 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 also very two faced about the way he interacts with everybody, because you know we he talks to the prince one way and then like goes around talking to the you know 
local people a totally different way and it's nobody wins in this movie nobody is the good guy uh per se and nobody's really the bad guy either there's no villains but there's also no heroes either yeah well it's just it's a story about politics over the course of three decades uh in a in a period where uh ultimate evil had not yet risen yeah right um, we we hadn't realized made, that we could actually create like true bad guys yet yeah yeah <laughs> in a movie made after we realized that so right, anyone who might have been viewed as a true bad guy ha- has a pretty strong historical perspective applied to yeah, it yeah i mean that's already. the really hard part because when you can make movies where and that and that's the unfortunate one of the unfortunate elements about the nature of film is that a majority of them at this point have been made after we had true bad guys. Yeah. In as much as that like you can't even get away with making like you know, the Confederates true bad guys. Yeah. Because it's like, well, but we got to compare them to the Nazis, so shit. Yeah. And that's and that's where the other problem is, where it swings the other way, and every historical villain becomes historical Hitler. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, those are your two options, right? You either have to make yeah. them as bad as Hitler, or they're just not bad, right? Which is yeah. a problem, right? Because yes, you can contextualize, but you know, let's I can rephrase, not Confederates, but like you know, slave owners. Let's let I me. Mean, which is not the entire Confederate army, but you get where I'm going with this. Yeah. My, my point is, is, like, when we have to make films about slavery where we contextualize it from the perspective that, well, at least they're not Hitler. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that is a weird road we have walked down in this world. Yeah, and without getting too deep into it, uh, the the evil and violence... Uh, I mean the the problem is that Hitler was one man, uh, whereas uh, most other a bunch of little Hitlers. But yeah, yeah. ultimately, American slavery uh, produced a Holocaust. So well, and and, <laughs> and and you would you would be hard pressed to get into a true debate about which is more an agree more, more egregious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in all, in all honesty, that is just not a debate I want to be involved in. Yeah, we're not because it, no, we're not nobody wins in that debate that. at all. No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, um, uh, right. But I mean, and so this film gets to, gets, but there's a benefit to a certain extent when you, when the film is done the way this is done, which is like, well, none of these people are. You can also, it also provides a sort of flat line, a sort of like the peaks and valleys become less significant when compared, relatively speaking. Yes. So it's like, well, <laughs> these guys are all people. So yeah. they can, whereas in a film made, if you made this in black and white in like 1940, you know, whatever, 43, sure as shit, one of those people would be the bad guy. Do you think that there was a point in Italian history where Garibaldi was viewed as a uh, person, persona non grata? <laughs> That's a good question. And I, you'd almost need to, you'd really need to sit there and dig into some like, Garibaldi like literature to know the answer to that. I would guess for certain groups for for sure. But it's a, on the question of whether or not as a whole 
for like the official stance on him. It's hard to know. Because he did like he also led a bunch of campaigns that were like to the benefit of Italy, right? But then also yeah. tried to unify Italy but didn't try to unify Italy under the current monarchy. So that would probably not win him any friends. Oh, he ended up serving in the parliament. Well, and that's the thing, right? Is it also that. seems like he was a part of the unified army after yeah. it was all over. So it's kind of like, that's what makes... The timeline of this movie is really weird and hard to figure out in that sense because they talk about Garibaldi's army with disdain, but presumably at some point they're in Garibaldi's army after yeah. they're wearing blue coats. Because he becomes, like, one of the major leaders of that army, too. <laughs> True enough. Everybody recognized that Giribaldi was a great general, and uh, they just gave him the money he wanted. Right, like, uh, I mean, yeah, it makes sense, right? It's like, well, I could either give this guy the money and hire him, or I could be on the other side on accident, and I don't want to deal yeah, with that right now. But though also, interestingly enough, that suggests that Giribaldi was just out for, you know, his own ends which were adventure and i think uh, to a certain extent military yeah. greatness but i think uh, also but... i think probably his fight for unified italy was probably a little bit yeah. more sincere on the other hand he also had actual uh progressive ideals right and, and actively was lincoln communicating with lincoln so you know what i mean it's like yeah. uh and again and i stand by... by my statement that lincoln probably made a mistake yeah. So he died in 1882, but in 1879, he founded the League of Democracy, which advocated for universal suffrage, abolition of ecclesiastical property, emancipation of women, and maintenance of a standing army. Yeah, uh, I mean, seems like, the, I mean, seems like he, he was one of those guys who, yeah, still also picked which team he wanted to be on. <laughs> yeah. And he still liked to fight. So. Yeah. So kind of like a little bit of both, right? Like, I'm going to fight for money, but I'm also going to make sure I'm on the team I actually want to be on. Yeah. And I guess if you're that famous and that, as a general, you get to do that. You get to pick, True enough. The, you get to pick your side. True enough. But and then so, they just throw money at you. Yeah. So famously, most most generals are also conservatives, right? Yes. Whereas yeah. Giribaldi was, was not just a famous general universally. He was also a famous revolutionary, period. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's such a fascinating... Yeah, it seems, it seems like a guy I would like to read a book about, to be honest. Seems yeah. like I, that would be a really interesting read. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what else do we have in this film? Well, I mean... I mean, you can talk about visuals. We did a little bit. I mean, they're amazing. The sound design is interesting. Um, yeah, it plays with the sound design a lot, and really, like there's silence when there shouldn't be, and there is music when there sure as hell shouldn't be, and it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, it does make it auditorially at times challenging. I think. Yeah. Um, for me, at least, there was like, times where I was like, "Should it be quiet right now?" Or why is everybody so loud? <laughs> uh, like why? Why is the music so freaking loud right now? And like it, and it, and. Weirdly enough, like, a good 50% of the time, the music is diegetic, which is really fucking weird. Yeah. Like, really good. I like it. But well, like, great-grandpa's um, pianos in every room. and Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Like, great-grandpa. Just definitely, just gotta get rid of those great-grandpa's pianos. It's just not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. But, like, no. Like, when you think about it, like, 
you know, half the time when the music's playing, we eventually find out it's coming from a person in the room. Exactly. Which yeah. is both interesting and also strange, which means, but it's not 100%, I don't think, Diagen. I, I, I could not think back to whether or not that was true. Yeah, I don't, so. I don't, I, I didn't keep close enough track of it, but more often, more, a surprising number of times, I'm like, why is the music so fucking loud? What is going on here? Why is there music in this scene like this? Oh, because that guy's singing it. Yeah. Okay. And that's why it's loud, too. Uh, right, no, exactly. It, it gives you a heard. presence of, like, this guy is, like, right next to me. Holy shit. And he yeah. is singing really loud. I I had talked earlier about the, uh, the ball scene being too long. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's perfectly that long because it doesn't end until dawn. And like halfway no, through, and we watch it. We there's people watch the ball yeah. die, the yeah. way ball there's like the way asleep. parties actually die. Yeah, where a, a, a certain like a certain critical mass of people fall fucking asleep. Yeah, and like he and he he's like we gotta prince, end this shit. He wakes up the prince to go home, and he's like ribbing him about falling asleep. But it's literally, literally dawn. dawn. Yeah, no, it's it's like and like. <laughs> literally half the party's asleep yeah the sun is shining through the windows why are you still dancing like <laughs> in all honesty well and that's how are would, you still dancing to be fair probably you or anybody you know dawn when you were whatever 20 something just didn't yeah. mean that much you're right i mean I'm you were old. tired but you, you could have done it now yeah shit no we've I, done I, it I mean, it's New, it's midnight, and I'm like, oh god, I need sleep. Um, <laughs> but I mean, just thinking about, but but that's what he's talking about. The courting was the best years of my life. That's this is part of what he's talking about. There's all this revelry as well, right? And yeah. then you get, then they actually get into the state of being married, and they're like, oh well, all that shit's gone. Now everybody's like, yep, you're married, cool, cool, enjoy. Um, for them especially, right? Because like the the revelry around an aristocratic marriage is like a big fucking deal, right? Yeah. Um, but the day before the day before uh the nephew and Angelica meet, uh the prince describes himself as being forty five. So it's <laughs> Well no 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 the prince is only forty five. Yeah. But only forty five in eighteen sixty. So the prince is yeah, he's pushing That's what it. I'm saying. You know, he's uh you know he'll he'll live for a while, but he's he's old as far as things are concerned. Uh, whereas the prince or the nephew, however old he might be, and Angelica, I think, is supposed to be seventeen. There, uh, yeah, he's that's... not not a lot older. Not no, he's he is early twenties, but he's not. Yeah, guaranteed. Um, so you know, there's still. So I mean, that's what I'm saying. Dawn is is hard, but that's it's fine. not it's not yeah. impossible. Uh, <laughs> He's probably he is probably tired, but he's also an aristocrat, so he can sleep till whatever time the next day. He <laughs> yes. has literally no job. Um, his job is being what he is, right? Uh, but um, the the one of the things that's interesting about it, I the ball scene for me, I spent a large percentage of the ball scene earnestly and seriously concerned that the prince was going to die at the end of that scene. I know, right? You like it was worrying. I was like, "Does this end in him dying at the ball? Holy shit! This is scary." There's so, there's so much of the him. The movie getting... telegraphs to you that he is going to kick the bucket, and that like yeah. when he's looking for the prince, you're like, "Oh shit, he's dead somewhere." Yeah, 
I yeah, like, like because he's he's becoming like, increasingly disenchanted with everything that's going on until Angelica asks him to dance, uh, and then he has this moment of joy, uh, and it's r- basically right back to disenchantment because he's sitting around falling asleep for the next half hour of film exactly, uh, and the next and, six and I'm hours waiting to of find life. That, right, and I'm waiting to find <laughs> out that one of those times he fell asleep is actually him just dying, and I was really concerned it was going to be in the in in the washroom. I was like, oh, they're going to find his dead body among a bunch of chamber pots. Oh, shit. This is yeah. terrifying. I don't want this dignified man to be found that way. And you're like, oh, no, he just fell asleep. No, he just fell asleep. Um, but then he he is alive at the end because he looks sad oh, yeah. uh, with the firing squad as uh, as Angelica and uh, her dad and Tenskredi are all slightly smiling and commending the the Italian army for keeping law and order for right. having killed these revolutionaries who they fought alongside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's very yeah. It's it's important that we have a strong army. It's a very much like a you are hypocrites. Congratulations. Yeah, but you've also but then basically again, made, you're also politicians. So congratulations. So. What we just learned about Giribaldi is that his League of Democracy advocated a standing army so he, well, but I, that, he thought again, it was important for a strong army again, too like that was pretty much par for the course in most yeah of those liberal democracies at the time but i mean that guy those guys are not advocating for a strong army they're advocating for their ability to exercise their power exactly yeah there's a when they say there. strong there's a difference between advocating for a strong army for the maintenance yeah. of for the concept of maintaining a liberal democracy versus yeah advocating a strong army for the purpose of maintaining your grip on the power over the people. Those are different things. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say Garibaldi had very different views. That's not what he saw that strong army as purposed for. There is some rumor that uh, 20th Century Fox's uh, agreement to put this out in the U.S. is why they had... That's not rumor. Uh, That is certainly true. An American had to star was part of the agreement for 20th Century Fox's money coming into this. Uh, I guess because they just rumor, thought like they needed a, a, a leading actor who could actually carry a film yeah. in America, right? But the, I mean, ru- the, uh, the rumor then is that uh, Gregory Peck, Anthony Quinn, and Spencer Tracy uh, were all considered for the role. Hmm. Uh, as well as Burt Lancaster, obviously. Burt Lancaster. Got I, it. I'm trying to imagine... Um, like. Those other people. Well, Anthony Quinn, you know, we saw him in La Strada. Um, right. And he could, he pulled off an Italian there. Well, um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically, like, Burt Lancaster doesn't immediately pop into mind either. But but bear in mind, for example, like, you do see um, Burt Lancaster do those kind of similar, not similar, but like along those lines kind of roles before this film was made. Because, yeah. for example, he was in some films where he is in old age makeup and and playing more sedate characters. Yeah. What I'm trying to imagine is like I could not imagine Spencer Tracy in this role. No, <laughs> I just can't. That's that's not something I can see. Gregory Peck, maybe. Yeah, uh, but I like when I think about Gregory Peck, right? And this is me being short sighted, right? I think about like you know. Uh, to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, and I'm trying to imagine that that guy. I, I should go. I'm going to his um, 
I, I'm going to the Google image searches to see what Gregory Peck yeah. later Well, To Kill a Mockingbird like. came out the year before this. Right, so that's basically impossible, right? Th- um, he would look like, because I'm looking at, like, um, when did, like, did Gregory Peck play fucking Bona- uh, Napoleon Bonaparte at some point? I don't know. Uh, I a- mean, he was he was a captain uh, in the Army in the Guns of Navarone. Um, I forgot he played Fitzgerald, beloved infidel. Uh I but he says he's know. too. He's not. He's not, to my mind, rugged enough. Whereas Burt Lancaster in that looks pretty. Yeah, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck is a is a, a New England pretty boy. That's yeah, and, and it just doesn't work. I could see Anthony Quinn. Oh, he's from California. No, no, right, anyway. but so Gregory he's, Peck has that look, right? Yeah. I could see Anthony Quinn doing it. He yeah. can look pretty. I could definitely believe Anthony Quinn being world wary, so yeah. that that's definitely possible. But Spencer Tracy is also like fifteen years older than the other three of those guys. But that actually probably would have worked. In that, like his face is all wrong, but yeah. that age would have helped, not hurt. Yeah, but we can see pictures of him where it's like, yeah, he would have looked a little bit too gentle. He has that has that softness to his face that just would have made him too yeah. a little bit too gentle. A little so bit one too, last, yeah. one last note on this film. Uh, there is a parody of it that what? was made two years later. What? To what e end? Figli del Lepardo, uh, a 1965 Atomi- Italian comedy film What's directed it by Sergi Corbucci. E Figli del Leopardo. It is a parody of the leopard. Uh, the uh, English Wikipedia's plot synopsis barely makes any sense. Um, well, it's an Italian comedy. It may be an accurate yeah. synopsis. Uh, this is directed by the same guy who directed the original uh, Django. Okay. Um, did a lot of a lot of spaghetti westerns uh, through the '60s, but also made this for some reason. I don't even I. <laughs> What what drives you? What 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 happens in your head when you see this movie? And you're like, you know what? I the world needs the world needs a joke version of this. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it, it's a, it, this is not unique to Italian cinema. We have this all over America, but it's like, it's still bothersome when somebody's like this super serious, interesting thing. Let's parody that. Yeah, I don't. I don't get it. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. It's one thing if you want to throw a joke about that thing into your otherwise comedy, but it's weird to make an entire parody about something like this. I'm learning something about Italian, um, specifically the director of that parody's preferred movie cover type. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is happening in these movies that all of these women are almost naked? It's it's just Italy, man. I it's but like I'm like looking through it and like some of them are like it it seems very disjointed. It's like this is a film about uh, this thing and then oh yeah, plus a, a half naked woman. It's very strange. <laughs> Hard to understand. Going to have to get out of this image search cuz it is strange. Anyway, so hopefully we'll get to see that as part of the Criterion collection. Oh, I'm sure. I'm point. sure it's like I'm sure it's next on the list. Oh, it is not next on the list. Next on the list, we have Mama Roma, 
uh, our first return to the work of Pier Paolo Pasolini uh, since uh, since Solo. Uh, oh boy! I'm sure it's a very different movie. Than I'm, Solo, I, so it's got to be right. Don't be too concerned. But we'll be talking about that next week. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes? Like us on Facebook? Or support us on Patreon? It's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.